So it's John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. There on the screen, John chapter 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had, had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman replied, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I the one speaking to you, am he. Well, a number of years ago, I was at a men's breakfast and we heard a bishop from India speak about what it meant to follow Jesus in a country where Christians are maybe 1% to 2% of the population. He told of a time when he and his church went to an untouchables district. These are people who live way down the bottom of the scale and began digging a series of wells. These people had no ready source of water. It was hard, it was sweaty work, finding the right place, clearing the topsoil, getting it ready, and then just digging shovelful by shovelful. It was hard work. It was made all the more awkward by regular interruptions from people, uh, from others in the district who were from other classes or castes, asking them what on earth 
they were doing. For some, there was a deep religious offence. These people are untouchables. They're down the bottom for very good reason. Don't mess with that. They've got to get themselves out of that position. For some, it was a broader social offence. Look, this is just the way things are. This is how it works. Don't disrupt the, the, the order, the age-old order. For others, it was just a deep suspicion. These people are dirt poor. There is no way they can pay you back. They can't reimburse the work. So what are you doing? What are you hoping to get out of this? Again and again, this Christian leader had explained that as much as they sought to respect the traditions of the country, their country, as Christians, they simply were not bound by the caste system. They refused to read these people and villages through that lens. As far as the social order of things was concerned, they were not resigned to things being the way they were. And as far as a debt, as far as not being able to be paid back, yep, they knew that. But whatever debt was owed to them, it was nothing compared to the debt that they owed to their Lord Jesus Christ and that enduring costly work of mercy that he had done in their lives. The way he described it, it was as if in spiritual terms, Jesus had dug wells of life and hope in their lives where once it was just dry, barren land. And because of that, they were driven to show that sort of love, that sort of enterprise and mercy to others wherever they could. He said the interrogators were kind of mystified, intrigued, and some just remained deeply offended. But they just kept digging. Well, friends, today we head deeper into John and we encountered Jesus at a well. He's ostensibly there to gain refreshment, but as we'll see, he's really there to give refreshment, not just to the Samaritan woman, but to each of us if we will allow him to cross religious boundaries, social boundaries, and perhaps most importantly, personal boundaries to get to us. If we allow that, he will satisfy our deepest thirst and he will show us how to walk with the one who made us. Well, let's look at part one here, the gift. In the first three chapters of the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus interact with a really rich field of Jewish people. John the Baptist, uh, his own disciples starting to gather, his mum, the wedding at Cana, the wedding party, uh, the sellers and the religious leaders at the temple, with, and Nicodemus, this really high-ranking uh, Jewish teacher. And true to what we heard way back in the introduction in chapter 1, the truth that Jesus would arrive and he would not be universally received, true to that, we've seen immense tension building around him, great division starting to appear even here at the beginnings of his ministry, such that chapter 3 ends on this note. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Well, who will be the next whoever that we encounter in John? Who's going to be the next person who will need to make a decision 
about how to respond to Jesus? Well, as it turns out, it's someone unlike anyone else we've encountered in the gospel so far. Because of the tension around him, chapter 4 opens with Jesus and his disciples heading back north to Galilee. And they go through Samaritan territory, non-Jewish territory. The Samaritans had sort of similar roots to the Jews. They held to the first five books of the Old Testament scriptures. But there were deep divisions of belief and behaviour. To the Jews, the Samaritans were deeply unclean. And more often than not, treated as enemies and outcasts. We're told that Jesus was tired from the journey and stopped by Jacob's well at midday, the hottest part of the day. The disciples had headed into town for food. And a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Religious rules dictate that he have nothing to do with this person for she is unclean. Social rules in a patriarchal culture demand that he as a man have little to nothing to do with her as a woman. And any wise adult reading the situation would know that a woman coming to this well at midday, not in the morning with the other women, is trying to avoid other people and is most likely an outsider in her village of outcasts. There are three reasons for Jesus to sit still, stay silent, and maybe even withdraw. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? You're a Jew. You are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She's stunned. This does not happen. It's not how it works. She's stunned, so too will his disciples be when they arrive back and so too would the early readers of John's Gospel. This woman could not be more different to Nicodemus back in chapter 3, that highly educated, politically powerful teacher of Israel. He is way up the top. This woman is way down the bottom. Yet Jesus, in full knowledge of those religious and social rules, oversteps them. And he deals with her in the same playful, incisive and loving way that he dealt with Nicodemus. At first he crosses that divide in order to get something. But we quickly find that he's done this in order to give something. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, that offer of water is a potent thing in a very, very dry land. We've already seen, haven't we, in John, water is a powerful image of repentance, of transformation, of cleansing through baptism, the wedding and new birth. And now Jesus is making this intriguing reference to his own character or his own identity and he's offering living water. She naturally, as any of us would, takes him literally. Observes, you've got nothing to draw with. This is a very deep well. Um, and where's this running living water to be found? These are people who knew the geography of their home intimately. They knew exactly where there was water, where there was not water. Where, where's this water, mate? 
And then she asks rhetorically, basically, are you greater than the patriarch Jacob, this great major figure from Genesis, the one who gave us this world? And the answer that Jesus gives is basically, yes, I am greater. Jesus answered there in verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus has a gift that is more than H2O. It permanently satisfies the deepest thirst and it's living, dynamic, eternal. Now, we're naturally suspicious, aren't we, when someone offers something uh, everlasting or permanent simply because we live in a world where change, decay and death are ingrained to our experience. Diamonds might be forever, but the hands they grace grow old, don't they? Even the best, the most beautiful and satisfying things, the things that we rightly thirst for from our earliest days, last only for a season. Health, work, Friendship, marriage, children, family, retirement, holidays, food, music. Some are short and some are lifelong, but none of these last forever. It's a truth recognised back in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. There are many things beautiful in their time, but we're not made for these things alone. Even the best things in time cannot satisfy the soul, the heart, in any permanent fashion. For the eternal God has planted eternity in your heart and mine. Because we are made by him, for him. We are made to relate to, to walk with and live alongside him forever. Isn't that just what we've heard in our Share Life series? When Jesus offers this woman and each of us that which once drunk means we never thirst again, He's striking deep at our, most deep at our most profound need, our greatest thirst. And that is intimacy with God, our creator and loving father. The very thing for which we were made, the thing most basic to our design, a right living relationship with the one who knows us best, who's made us by hand. That image of a, of a spring welling up speaks of a dynamic, growing relationship that begins here and it wells up to eternity. It's a living presence of God. That's, that, that's God's Holy Spirit resident within, a God who, who lives inside us. So let me ask you this. Have you drunk that water? Do you know that living relationship with God? Do you want 
today, here, this morning, the gift that Jesus has to give? If the answer is yes, then we need to be ready for him to start digging wells deep into our lives, just as he does with this woman. So part two, the well. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't have to get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She says yes, but she's still not grasped the nature of the gift, has she? He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I haven't got a husband, she said. Jesus' sudden directive to get her husband It might sound that his sense of propriety has kicked in, but that's not it, is it? He knows that she has no husband. He who has crossed religious and social boundaries to engage her now crosses the most intimate personal boundary and presses deliberately into her shame and the reason she's come out to this well at midday. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man that you have now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. He knows her inside out. He knows the relational wreckage and sin that has marked her life. The likely hunger and thirst for intimacy and security that has driven her from one relationship to another. He knows it all. But he's not walked away, he's not flinched. Because for him to give her this living water, he will have to confront all that lies within. Digging a well means clearing topsoil, doesn't it? It means heading deeper and deeper until you hit water. It is seriously hard work. Jacob's well today is 100 feet deep. And it's thought it might have been deeper back in Jesus' day. What lies 100 feet down in your life and in mine? Jesus knows what's down there, just as he did with this woman and Nicodemus. And he faces our worst, not as some spiritual spy, not as some sort of snobby critic to demean us, He does it as a saviour, a loving saviour. Jesus knows that to dig a well in the woman's life, to meet her deepest thirst, to meet yours and mine, he'll have to die on the cross one day. He'll have to bear the cost of all that wreckage and sin in himself. He'll need to bring her to life in him through the loss of his own life. Only then can she and each of us be forgiven, to be set right with God, fit for his living, holy presence within by his Holy Spirit, welling up to eternity. He'll need to displace what is condemnable in order to replace it with that which is holy, living, brilliant himself. So for Jesus, meeting that thirst, digging those wells, is loving, costly, deadly work. Do we still want the gift? 
Will we welcome God's deliberate, careful excavation of our lives? Are you, am I, ready for that sort of truth? There can be no other way if we're to know him and the eternal life that he can give. There can be no other way if we're to truly worship him and know that living water wherever we might be right now. So last part, part three, true worship. Well, if Jesus is the master of the sudden switch to the, to the deep personal sort of question, in some ways he's met his match, hasn't he, in the Samaritan woman. Uh, he's just laid her life bare and she shifts just as quickly to a large theological question and debate of the day. In verse, uh, yeah, said, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She might be shifting or moving the subject away from her own shame. But we see in verse 25 and her later return to the village, this woman is genuinely curious. There is a seriousness about God in her life, a hope that she is holding onto. And she finds in this tired, thirsty and rather inappropriate Jewish man a prophet, someone who's clearly got something about God about him. And she raises one of the big differences between the Samaritans and the Jews. The latter worship God on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, in that very temple that we saw back in chapter 2, whereas the Samaritans had long worshipped on Mount Gerizim. Jesus is quick to affirm in verse 22 that God's salvation is revealed through the Jews. The Samaritans have got it wrong. But at times coming, when she and others won't worship the Father either on Gerizim or Zion, the mountains won't matter. As significant as geography and place is, they're about to become irrelevant when it comes to worshipping God. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. You see, with the arrival of Jesus, a revolution is brewing. Just as he stood in the temple back in chapter 2, spoke of just tearing it down and rebuilding it in three days, running a parallel between the building and his body, here he is announcing that true worship is not about standing in the right place, but being in right standing with God. We say that again. Here he's revealing the true worship of God is not about standing in the right place, but being in right standing with God. The salvation that is from the Jews is not just for the Jews, is it? It's for all nations, including these Samaritans. God is spirit. He is present everywhere. He's not locked into a particular sacred spot. That means that he is right here now. Whether here is this building or it's your lounge room or wherever you are watching this, he is right here now. And as someone who is immediately present, 
It's simply no use, is it, pretending in front of him, putting on a show when he can see everything. He knows us inside out. Absolute naked truth, it's his only currency. Nothing's hidden from him. Our heavenly Father wants worshippers who have said yes to that gift of eternal life through his Son, the life that wells up in his Holy Spirit. He wants worshippers to come to him humbly, honestly, wherever we are. Friend, is that you, as it must be me, meeting God in that way, who is right here now? The Samaritan woman is expectant and humble. She's not pretending that she understands all this, but she's certain that one is coming who will explain it all. Here is a woman with all her brokenness who is holding to the promise of God by faith. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. It's an amazing moment, isn't it? She who came out on her own in the hottest part of the day, an outsider among outcasts, expecting, probably hoping no one is here, encountered a tired, thirsty Jewish man with an extraordinary gift. And it was to her, not to any Jewish man or woman, that he first declared that he, the one speaking to her, is the Messiah, God's chosen one, that one long promised, a promise fulfilled. God in the flesh was right there now. Jesus knows our deepest thirst, our greatest need is for right living relationship with God. And he's willing to cross all religious, social and personal boundaries to offer us this gift, to dig that well deep in you and me. He knows what lies deep down and on the surface and he doesn't flinch, he doesn't walk away. In fact, he steps in. He is willing to bear the cost of that in his own life on the cross in order to make us his own. Digging wells of living water, it's a serious sacrificial business. Will we, will you accept that gift? If so, he'll make us men and women who know, know in our bones, know today, that worshipping God is not about standing in the right place, but it's being in right standing with him. Worshipping in the spirit and truth wherever we are, today and into eternity. Amen.